Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Stephanie Corey. Stephanie is a true pioneer in the field of legal operations. She started her career in business and finance, but became the first legal ops professional in Silicon Valley when she assumed that role for HP. She then co-founded and is a former executive member of the leading legal operations trade organization, CLOCK. If you don't know CLOCK, well, I'm sorry, but you should. It's the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium. Today, Stephanie is a co-founder of Uplevel Ops, a consulting firm specializing in providing services for in-house legal departments and law firms. Join us as we explore the evolution of legal operations, from budgeting to a true business focus for legal, how the culture at HP created the perfect conditions for innovation in the law department, and the role of serendipity in driving change. It was a delightful conversation. I hope you enjoy. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate you having me here. So I, I want to talk about your journey and sort of the evolution of the legal ops profession and what you do at Uplevel Ops uh, and the trend lines you're seeing. But as I was thinking about the discussion today, I was thinking back a, a few years ago, pre-pandemic, I had the pleasure of speaking at a clock conference in Las Vegas, and I was just awestruck by the number of people there, the professionalism, the growth of the profession. As someone who helped found this profession, I mean, founded an entire profession, in your quiet moments, do you sometimes sort of sit in awe of yourself and those that you founded this with as how this has grown and what's become of this profession? You know, I guess in all the interviews I've ever done, no one's ever asked me that, Stephen. So it's an interesting question. (laughs) I would say I am never in awe of myself because in all honesty, I know that how I landed here was completely by accident and it was not of my own doing at all. And so there's no way I could really look at myself and think, wow, I'm magical or anything like that. It was literally, I was very much looking to make a move from a small company into a big company. And HP 20 years ago was, you know, the company to work for in the Valley here. And I was lucky enough that the general counsel was looking for somebody with a strong finance background. The job was called legal operations. I had no idea what legal operations was. Nobody did back then, right? And I honestly didn't even understand what legal departments did for corporations. I had no idea the breadth of, you know, the the duties that, that these departments were responsible for. And I looked at this as an entry into a big, great company that I wanted to work for. And I assumed I would work in the legal space, you know, for a year or two just to really kind of get some experience with the company and then move into one of the businesses. I don't have a law background or I didn't back then. And I just never saw my career, you know, supporting lawyers for my whole life. So it, it, it was really dumb luck if I'm being completely honest with you. And it just morphed. And I think that I have good stick to is just part of my DNA. And so I saw that there was a lot to be done and that we could do a lot as a group. And I saw that we could do a lot together. 
And honestly, even founding Clock was really about reaching out to colleagues because when you're doing legal operations, especially if you're the only person running legal operations within a corporation, you're the only person in that whole company who does what you do. Exactly. Right. You don't have a counterpart. And so the only way to figure out how you can do your job better, and that's one of the things business school really teaches you, everything is done in groups because you're better with bigger numbers and, uh, and with other people giving you ideas and, you know, and just brainstorming. And so that's really how we founded Clock was really just all about reaching out to other people to see what else others were doing and how we could leverage each other's best practices and knowledge. And so honestly, it was really one of those things where you wake up 20 years later and and you're kind of like, wow, okay, this became a whole thing. And it makes sense. And every other industry has it, right? Every industry has operations to some degree. And so it, it was only a matter of time before legal had it as well. Well, what's become of the profession is as someone who's been around a very long time, it's sort of amazing to me what's the evolution of the legal operations profession from 20 years ago, I would say even 15 or 10 years ago, nobody knew what legal operations was to now, a real driver of change in the profession. But let's unpack just a little bit what you just said. You started in a, in a finance business background, got your MBA, got your undergraduate in economics, and you start down the path working for an investment company where you're going to manage money. So you then move to working with lawyers. Was it as simple as you just wanted to work for HP and this was the job they were hiring for? You said you didn't really know what it was to work for lawyers. How did they convince you to take this job? Oh, it's a great story, actually, Stephen. I was young. I was just in my early 20s. I graduated from, you know, uh, Lehigh with my MBA, which I went pluses and minuses to going to grad school right after undergrad school. You're kind of on a roll and your studying is not an issue, you know, studying late into the night hours, getting up at 5 a.m. to do work. Piece of cake because you're just on a roll. So that was a benefit. Plus, I'd gotten a, a teaching assistantship at Lehigh, so they were going to pay my way. It was So that was a no-brainer. I was getting my MBA. But the, the downside to that is you have no work experience, right? So I'd never really worked in a corporation so that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't bringing a lot to the table, I don't think, for the team who got to work with me, unfortunately. <laughs> but, you know, I, I did. I envisioned myself like this, you know, person working in economics or finance. And that was my first love. And, you know, got my brokerage licenses, like you said, and, you know, studied for all of my financial exams and learning about calls and and puts and all that good stuff. And I realized it it wasn't very fun. Honestly, working with very wealthy people is not fun. It just for me, I didn't enjoy it. It became very clear to me very quickly that I could not do this job my whole life. And so I went in-house at a mortgage bank after that and was running their accounting and finance department. It was a small mortgage banking company. And I really enjoyed that. So that was the place where I got to practice my financial skills. I worked directly with the CFO. I worked with the finance director and it was really a fun job. And it was kind of a startup-y environment, which I enjoyed. You know, I was young. I had no kids at the time. I wasn't married. And and so we would work, you know, late and just have fun together and, and party after work. It, it was a, It was a good time. But at some point, I did really want to jump into like that whole Silicon Valley experience. And so I was looking for another role where I can do something different and bigger. And HP was that role. Going from finance to working with lawyers wasn't a huge change. I mean, you have people who are are, are very motivated, you know, very, very smart 
and the environment wasn't all that different, to be honest with you. But I'll tell you, so I was very young. I'm interviewing. So I walk in, I was working at a car. I had my own office when I was at the mortgage bank, but it was like literally at a card table in this crappy little closet office, (laughs) you know, kind of a thing. And uh, yeah, it it was, you know, it was an interesting experience. I'm so glad I did it. And I love the people I worked with. I still stay in touch with some of them. It was great. But going into HP, I walked into like this big building, you know, iconic company built in this into the side of the hill on the Stanford property, you know, off of Page Mill Road. It was a whole experience. And then I walk in and um, the administrative assistant to the general counsel is walking me up the stairs and she was so great. And I still I love her and still stay in touch with her. And she, she puts me in this boardroom, you know, the big traditional like wood everything and I'm sitting at this table and it was a panel interview with the general counsel. His name is Jack Brigham and all of Jack's direct reports there. There was about 12 people in that room and I'm sitting there and I'm. Oh, my God. Oh, it was I was probably 24 years old. Right. And I said to myself, well, I'm never going to get this job. So let's (laughs) have fun with the interview. And it's with all the arrogance and confidence, the undeserved confidence of a young person. You know, like now I would be popping Xanax. I swear to God, Steve, (laughs) if I had to go through that again. (laughs) Uh, You're freaking me out just telling me the story. Right. But at 24, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to get this job. I'm just going to use this to practice and have fun. And and I did my prep work, right? Like I read this great book about how you should have a 60 second elevator pitch about yourself and all that. So I did all my interview prep work and I was ready. And I was actually, I talked to my managers at the mortgage bank. I was very upfront, like, and they, they totally got it. This was a good experience. They didn't think I was going to get the job either, frankly. <laughs> and how I got it was this is before you had to submit your resume through portals. And I had a friend who worked at HP and he said, Hey, you know, he didn't even, he was a financial analyst. And he's like, Jack is hiring. Here's the role. And it described like it looked like I could handle the role. Right. And he said, here's his email address. So you could just email him your resume right away. And so I just send this resume to like Jack Brigham, who's like the, you know, he's like one of the guys. He was the guy. And I just, you know, again, with all the same, that arrogance of a young person. And then I'm like, hey, Jack, I think I'd be great for your role. My friend told me that you were hiring. Here's my resume. Please give me a call if you're interested. And he called. So that in and of (laughs) itself was a miracle. And so, you know, I have this interview. And I'm getting grilled by the head of IP. His name was Steve Fox. And he's asking me all these behavioral questions. If you worked at McDonald's, would you be the cashier or would you be flipping burgers and back? And what do you do? You've never worked at a big company. What happens if you can't find, you know, the resources you need? And I'm just answering these questions like I love working with people. I'm a people person. You know, this is a huge company. I'm sure if I don't have the resources, I can ask somebody. I'm great at finding, you know, ways of doing things, blah, blah, blah. And he was just nodding, nodding. Finally, Jack looks at him and says, Steve, please stop. I don't think anybody at this table would be passing this interview if we had to, (laughs) you know, talk to you. Then Jack looks at me and he says, you know what, Stephanie, you seem very qualified. You seem like a lovely young lady who, you know, clearly you're very smart, but you're going to be working with a lot of lawyers and they have huge egos. So do you think you can handle working with lawyers with egos? And I looked at him and I said, Jack, my father's a surgeon. (laughs) <laughs> and he goes, fabulous. <laughs> and so, well prepared you are. Yes. I mean, I, I'm used to dealing with egos. And so next thing I know, three weeks later, I didn't hear from him at all. 
sent him a thank you note, did all the right things, right? And this other hedge fund had in the interim have had made me a verbal offer and I verbally accepted. And I had the offer letter on my desk. And Jack Brigham calls me that day. I'm just about to sign and FedEx the letter back to the company. So I actually got the call from Jack. He called me at my, you know, I'm sitting at my desk and he said, we want to make you the offer. And I said, well, I I just verbally accepted an offer with a hedge fund, which would have meant I would have stayed in finance, right? And he said, well, don't sign anything. He goes, I'll come right back to you. Well, I think he thought I was negotiating, which I absolutely (laughs) was not. And he comes back with a higher offer, more stock options and a sign on bonus, which I wasn't getting any of that at the hedge fund. And I was like, I almost fell off my chair. It was twice what I was making. You know, I'd never gotten a sign on bonus before, certainly never had stock options before. And I took the offer to my boss at the mortgage bank. I'm like, what do you think? And he's like, well, we sure as hell can't you know, match that. You got to take it. And so, and so that's how I ended up at HP. Very long story, long way. But I've never told anybody like that full story, you know, well, that's a great story. It was great. It was like all that's what I'm saying. Like it was all just magically kind of laid out before me. It's kind of crazy how it all happened. And I'm so lucky and so grateful. It was meant to be. Yeah. They, they took a risk with me, right? I was young and didn't have the experience, but I was able to really grow. NHP at the time was so concerned about their employees. They had all these management courses, which I had a good management background just from my, my business training, but just like learning the HP way. And and this was still when, you know, Dave Packard would still walk around the office, right? Like you could still see him walking around. And it was a great time to work for such a great, iconic company. Even Steve Fox, my fabulous IP, head of IP, who was grilling me in the interview, became a mentor. And he sat with me every day and taught me about intellectual property and what they were responsible for, which was huge for HP. The head of litigation, I would sit with him and he would talk to me about all of that. So they took the time to really train me and how legal departments run. It was the best you know, experience I could have ever asked for. I don't know when this was in terms of time, maybe 20 years ago or so. Is that what you said? Yep. Legal ops was not a thing back then. So this had to be a very unusual position, even in Silicon Valley. I think the first and only, I I think I was honestly the first legal ops manager in Silicon Valley. I don't think anybody else was doing it back then. What was it about Jack or his team or the culture of HP that led them to create this novel position? They were fortunate enough to find you for it. I think, Stephen, first of all, this role was happening on the East Coast in some degree. And I think it was in the financial firms and in the pharma firms, you did see legal operations. And I think it was because, you know, of course, it looked different than it does today. But in some form, there was some management of bringing business principles right to the legal department. And I think it was because they were so, so highly regulated. For Silicon Valley, nobody was doing that. It was very techie startup, you know, mentality, and nobody ever thought about that. And HP was the first. And I think it was because it was really about outside counsel spend. It was huge. It was getting out of control. And so that was really my primary focus for the first couple of years was understanding the budget, trying to centralize it. HP was at one point very, very decentralized. So this was, no, we're going to capture all of the legal spend under the legal budget, you know, and really understand what we're spending so that we can figure out how to manage it. So it was honestly about finances to start. We had a small tech component. And so I did have a tech team, an IT team who worked directly for me. And then that's where I 
learned, you know, what I know about technology today, it was really there. And it was like a lot of help desk stuff and then building some databases because there was no legal tech you could really buy off the shelf back then. And so managing your IP, you know, doing some basic stuff there. So we were building all of that ourselves. But the primary focus was surely finance. And that's been an interesting part of the evolution of the legal operations profession. You know, when I first became aware of it, it was through the pricing and the budgeting standpoint and to watch it evolve into a true operations function, process and technology and cost has been a, a fabulous thing to watch. And one of the big drivers of that is clock. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about that being sort of a, I guess, a happy accident as well, in the sense that you started trying to connect with other people doing similar things. Tell us about how the clock started and how the idea came to you and your colleagues. So at that time, I was working with Huron Consulting to help with some of the bigger programs that we were doing. I think maybe it was contracts management. And Huron was big at that time in the consulting space. They were one of the few companies doing legal consulting. And a woman named Nancy Jessen was my primary contact there. And so I said, I have to start reaching out to some other people. Like there's got to be some other people out there who are doing legal operations. And so I started reaching out to some local companies, you know, assuming that some of the bigger ones, Cisco, you know, Facebook wasn't around. Google had just started, you know, kind of was a newer company maybe not just started, but their legal team was really getting more mature. And so there were some other companies around and then she put me in touch. So I, I was picked up the phone and I was literally just calling their GCs or emailing their GCs and saying, Hey, I'm, you know, Steph Corey. I'm the chief of staff here in the legal department. Here's what I do. Do you have somebody on your team who does something like this? And so I started getting in touch with other, they're like, yeah, we do here. Let me introduce you. And so I got great traction that way. In fact, I think I heard from every single GC I reached out to. They put me in touch with somebody or else told me, you know, they didn't, but they're, you know, they'd like to stay in touch because they're looking at this role. So there was interest for sure. So we informally had this little group going where we were started just messaging each other. And then Nancy introduced me to Connie Brenton, who was at NetApp, and she was also trying to do the same kind of a thing. And so then initially we started meeting by phone just every month. We were having like an, an hour long phone call. Hey, what are you guys doing? What do you guys, you know, what are you doing for this? What are you doing for that? We realized we're all working on exactly the same things, which was ironic. And that's happened to Stephen like throughout my whole career. It seems like the focus, it goes in waves and everybody's focused on the same thing at the same time. I still don't understand that phenomenon. It's very unusual. But I realized that there's something to this. It's not going away. We're all struggling with these same things. So we decided to meet in person. Our very first meeting was at HP. I think it was in 2010. And it was, you know, the 12 or 14 original cast members, you know, with people that I still am lucky enough to stay in touch with these days. But we just got together and started talking about, you know, what are you doing for this or what are you doing for that? Have you got some templates you could share? And we just realized, you know, as long as you strip all the confidential information out of it, you can certainly share templates, you can share ideas. It's going to help all of us, right? And honestly, I think this profession would not be where it is today if we weren't all getting together and sharing these ideas. If we all had to struggle in a vacuum, I can't imagine how difficult our lives would all be. No, absolutely. Talk to us from your perspective about the evolution of the profession, because it's it's come, as you said, from sort of budgeting to a 
true operations business focus for legal departments. Yeah. But that's been a it's been an interesting evolution and you've had different people take that journey at different rates with you. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it definitely started as more of an analyst type of support role. And I sat on the GC staff like most legal ops managers do, but you were a coordinator, right? Like you were taking the notes, you were following up on the action items, you were driving a lot of this stuff, but your role was not strategic, right? It was operational. You're the operations manager. You weren't the one like necessarily coming up with the great ideas or trying to piece things together. But the role changed for sure when I think general counsels really started to recognize that their roles actually became more strategic, right? So rather than, okay, I'm the top lawyer for the company and we're just going to go and and deal with problems as they come up, they realized that now all of a sudden, if they're going to be counted as their peers, you know, on the same level as their peers, they've got to not just say, okay, you know, we're, we're running around dealing with all this legal risk. Instead, it's okay. This is how we accelerate bringing revenue into the company, right? This is how we enter new markets. You know, of course, it's reduction of risk. But if we do this, then we can get dollars in the door faster. So I think the role of the GC has evolved tremendously from when I started. Right. And even if you look, Stephen, at the practice of law, you saw the in-house lawyers were dealing with a lot of more of the mundane work and a lot of the really significant work was outsourced to law firms. And now we see that model has changed where no, the in-house lawyers are the ones who should be doing the strategic work. Of course, you're always going to use outside counsel, but you really have to be thoughtful in what work you're keeping in-house versus what you're outsourcing. So either you build your team, you outsource at the lower levels, right? You use what we used to call ALSPs. I don't know what they're called now, but just the, the other types of service providers. New law. New law, right? So they can do a lot of the legal work that you don't need your in-house teams focusing on, but like your in-house teams can even be more strategic and then outsource to law firms as, you know, just use them in a better way. And so GC started to kind of think about how they were running their departments differently and how they were supporting the businesses differently. Legal ops managers had to start doing the same thing. So we're no longer here to just run an RFP for outside counsel and get, you know, I'm going to ask you for another 10% off your hourly rates. It's so much more than that. And so then the role, I think, of legal ops really had to evolve to become more of that chief of staff, like, hey, I'm going to help you build the strategy for the department. Like I started with my general counsel, December, January, we started having these conversations with the whole team. We would do an offsite or whatever. What if we do this? And then as the, as the chief of staff, head of ops, I would say, okay, you know, realistically, this is what I think we can do for the upcoming year. Let's prioritize. And then me and my team and whoever else I needed, the lawyers have to participate. So I would, we would work with, you know, different lawyers for different initiatives. And then we would just operationalize the vision of the general counsel. But then not only were we just behind the scenes doing stuff, we started to become the face of the department too, right? So just like the general counsel, I think it's the only other role in most legal departments that interfaces with every one of the organizations within the company, right? So I was meeting with the CIO regularly saying, here's what we need from a resourcing perspective. Here's what we can do. Not only here's what I need from you, but 
hey, we need to implement e-signature and we should do this as a company. And now it's workflows, right? Like we could get bots and legal, you know, you can actually reduce the very expensive resources of lawyers, reduce the time they spend answering the same repetitive question over and over again if you're using this technology in the right way. So I would partner with IT really closely and do some of these initiatives and legal would be seen as cutting edge, which they never were before. And then, you know, finance, the same thing in HR, the same thing, right? Like we came up with a bunch of great programs for our employees with travel and like short-term assignments where they would build and grow and all of that. We were able to fund that through savings and outside counsel. And so we were able to self-fund a lot of that, but we became more strategic in how we were, you know, managing the risk and just legal for the company. And then operations really had to step up their game too and be seen as more of the chief of staff, not just the head of operations, but the one who's like really managing the vision of the general counsel or the CLO. It's a different skill set, isn't it, than just simply being a lawyer or or running, even running a group within a a legal department? It is a different skill set. Yeah. I, I think that it's I have a good friend. She's the general counsel of a company called Confluent. Her name's Melanie Vinson. And she did both. She is an amazing lawyer and a general counsel, but she also went back and got her MBA. She's a bit of an overachiever. And she and I had a long conversation about how very different law school is to business school and how it's it's like polar opposite and how the skills of a business person, you know, what you learn in business school is just completely different than law school. And so you learn those like, you know, taking a step back and, and looking at how to do things a certain way and work with other people. I think it is different. And, you know, you're, you're right. And even being a more junior ops manager, which of course is how we all start out, you know, moving up that value chain, which is what everybody asked the lawyers to do. And we had to do it too. It's not just, oh, I think I can do this one little program and save money. All of that is still important, but it now it's broader. It's really connecting the dots. It's being the glue that really holds the legal department together. And it's morale. It's like working with everybody. It's being the ear to the ground to know what's going on in the department. And being able, the GC doesn't usually and and shouldn't because they just don't have the time to know every little thing that's going on in the department. You should be the one that they're everybody's coming to and asking questions. I mean, as chief of staff, when I was at Flex, my most recent in-house role, people would bounce ideas off of me before they took them to John, the general counsel. They would say, do you think this is a good idea? How will he react? It was a value to John, right? Because then he didn't have to field those things. But also my partnership with the other functions and the business units was also really important. Absolutely. So your most current venture is Uplevel Ops, which you co-founded. Tell us a little bit about that business, what it does and what you're seeing as trends in your working with various legal departments. Yeah, I think at one point, John announced he was going to retire and I kind of twisted his arm and I said, let's do this as a business and consult because I was getting calls all the time. Like, what do you do for this? What do you do for that? And I thought, and it was coming off the first clock meeting in San Francisco where we had 500 people show up to an inaugural conference. It was a big deal. I'm like, just like you said, Stephen, I'm like, this is real. Like there's a lot of people who are, who are doing this. And so John said, okay, yeah, I think we can, we can start and see how it goes. I assumed I do this for a few months and probably wouldn't be successful at it and then have to get another in-house job, but, (laughs) but we'll see how it goes. And now it's been almost, it'll be six years in August. I can't believe that already. And 
it's amazing to me how quickly people want ops in their functions. So before we used to say, oh, you get to about 20, 30 people, then you can hire an ops manager. And now I get calls regularly. And in fact, this is probably the core of our business is the 20 and under, but it's really the five and under. So it'll be a GC with like two or three people working for them, sometimes a GC by themselves. And they're like, look, we don't have bodies. How can I get this work done? Makes it even more important for them, doesn't it? It really does. And I don't know why that didn't dawn on me when I first started. But yes, it makes so much sense now. They don't have bodies. So what are, what's the right way to get this work done? It can't be outsourcing it all to outside counsel. You're going to spend a fortune. There's better ways to do it and, and have a good mix, right? And so we ended up working with and do work with a lot of really small legal departments. And so I think the trend is we're seeing legal ops very early, which we never did before. And it's smart because it's a great way to get that structure built before you grow. It's a lot harder 10 years down the line to fix bad habits and clean stuff up. And if you can get it right from the beginning, the growth is a lot easier. You can find documents, you can find contracts, right? You know, you have the right partners that you're working with. And so that's a trend. I think from a technology standpoint, we have the foundational systems are still critical. So we still do, you know, the e-billing systems, the contracting work is is abundant. That's probably 60% of the work we do. But I think the more interesting trends are certainly workflow automation and intake is a big part of what we do now. So how does work come in? How does it get routed? How long is it taking to get done? And being able to get metrics from that. So automating intake and and the workflow of certain things is really critical. And there's good tools out there. That's the the other thing, right? That's changed as technology has gotten vastly better than it was. And so, you know, working with legal departments to figure out not just what outside counsel is working on, but what in-house, what you're working on as well. And you'll never get them to track time. So a good way to do that is to manage workflows because then you can see just like you could get an idea of volumes and who's asking what, right? And then I think what we're going to start seeing in the future, because we're starting to see it now, is that bot technology, which is let's just answer questions. People could go to the website, you know, the legal uh, intranet, you know, ask a quick question and get the template you need, get the training you need, get to the right resource, um, right person, whatever it is. And so we're seeing that now actually working and functioning really well. And I think we're going to start to see a lot of that continue more self-help, right? So you can use lawyers in a better way when more for like as a consultant, right? Like that's what lawyers do. And so if you can get the basic questions answered automatically, then this way you can talk to a lawyer when you really need them. As part of your your practice, do you also deal with the behavioral changes needed to really adapt and utilize technology, particularly bot technology? Well, this answer could be a little bit different depending upon the circumstance. I don't want to go to use self-help. I want to talk to somebody. There's a change management piece that goes in all of this as well. Yeah, change management on both sides, right? Because one is you have to get adoption within the legal team. And it's a whole process because you you have to build the business case and work with IT. And so there's a whole thing there that we do where you have to convince the legal department. You have to have a little bit of groundswell of, of yeah, we, we want to do this or else don't push that. This is what I always tell ops managers. If people aren't asking for it, don't push it because then it's just your agenda and you're not going to get the adoption you need. But if people are saying, hey, I'm drowning, that's when you say, OK, well, there's a way right where you can get some of this self-help done. 
I think our whole practice of how legal departments work has evolved so that people are a little more used to self-help. Like 10 years ago, if you said you have to use this IT ticketing system, nobody would have done it, right? Nobody wants to use a lawyer in that way on both sides. And the lawyers don't want to do it. The, their clients don't want to do it. And I agree. It was, it was clunky. But it's different now. Now it feels like you're just typing in, you know, we're used to using search tools. We're used to, you know, searching for things ourselves. So the technology has gotten to a place where it it doesn't feel terribly different than anything else they're doing. They're used to self-help. And so I think it's, you know, once you get the support from the legal team, yeah, this this will be a good way to take off 10% of the questions that we're answering, which will, you know, just be a pressure release valve. So I think once you get support from the legal team, that's where change management starts there, right? Where you start to get them comfortable and, you know, they're looking at tools with you. They're talking to other legal departments to see how they've done it. They start to get the idea. Yes. Okay. I'm in, let's do this. And then it goes all the way to the clients where, they are used to using self-help because certainly IT has gone there, HR has gone there, most of the other functions have gone there, but I would start very small, right? And so if it is, I need an NDA template, get me to the right template. I don't want to use the last one I have in my email because it might not be up to date. So, you know, get me to the right place. And so you just start very small that way. You still make it very easy. Oh, did this not answer your question? Here, talk to a lawyer, right? And so you still want to make it very easy. This isn't about taking away their resources. This is about giving them quick answers to things that, frankly, I don't want to talk to a human if I could just download something that I need right away. And I think that people have gotten there, but it has to happen pretty slowly to get people used to it. And again, it's not like you're saying you're never going to talk to a lawyer again. It's just, hey, here, try this first. This, If this doesn't work now, come to legal. So you start slowly and I think it evolves slowly, frankly. Absolutely. Well, Stephanie, we've we've run out of time. I could keep this conversation going for a lot longer because it's been fascinating talking to you. But thank you so much for your insights and your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Stephen. Yeah, I feel like I talked your ear off. So sorry. It was it was fascinating. It was it it was great. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.